Good evening, everybody, and I uh, want to welcome you to our midweek devotional time. Uh, it is Acts 18 that we're going to be beginning with tonight, Acts 18. So glad to have you join us, and uh, we are going to be doing something that's a little bit different from what I've been doing in this time over the past uh, month or two, uh, which is we are doing a Q&A tonight. So uh, I want to explain for those who may not uh, be familiar with what we do when we do Q&A, or maybe you've forgotten because... Uh, we haven't had an opportunity to do Q&A in a couple of months, that uh, what this is is questions that have been submitted to me by members of the church here, and uh, these are questions that I then take and study through. As you'll see tonight, there are some things that I just don't know that I had to find out a little more about, and uh, so then I'm going to prepare some answers and give those to you. Uh, normally, I would say it's not a press conference where we go back and forth, but none of you are here in the building, so um, I don't think even if you had more questions that I could answer them. Uh, so uh, I'm going to try to answer some of these, and uh, these are some questions. I was talking to Richard before we started. Um, I don't think that when I decided to start preaching, I ever dreamed I would address some of the things that I have been asked to address tonight, uh, but I do think they're interesting, and most importantly, I think we can, we can work through them to get to a point where there's something that will build us up and uh, encourage us from these questions. Uh, so you might wonder how that is, but I'll, I'll explain. As you see the question, you might wonder how that could be. Uh, the first question is this. Uh, if Paul was a tent maker, then why did Israelites need tents year-round? The question is about uh, how could somebody make, make a living as a tent maker if, uh, you know, what, what's the need for tents? What's the demand for tents? And uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. And uh, I'm also going to take that in some other directions here. Uh, Acts 18 is the reference here, and I want to read through this so we can talk about Paul and his, uh, his uh, trade of being a tent maker. Acts 18 and verse 1, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade... He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So the context behind this story is that Paul has been run out of Thessalonica in the northern part of Greece. And then he goes to Berea. He's run out of Berea. Then eventually, uh, well, it's Philippi before Thessalonica. He's run out of Philippi, then Thessalonica, then Berea. And so he comes down to Athens, and in 17, he, he talks to the people on Mars Hill in Athens or the Areopagus. Then he goes out of Athens down to Corinth, and it's sort of a laying low kind of time for Paul. And he decides, as he's in Corinth, I'm going to revert to tent making. And it's only, as you saw there in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy come down from Thessalonica that he sort of devotes himself full time to preaching again. So uh, the tent-making idea is that it was a rule among the Jewish elites that if a young man was going to study theology, was going to study to be a rabbi, he needed to have a trade. So Paul was from Tarsus, which is a place in, in uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and a region known as Cilicia. And he moves down to Jerusalem to study under a famous Pharisee named Gamaliel. And we actually know that Gamaliel had this rule Gamaliel's rule was learning, listen to this, this is a, maybe a good one to use on your kids, learning of any kind unaccompanied by a trade ends in nothing and leads to sin. So that's Gamaliel. He says, hey, we're going to learn a lot of stuff. Well, you need a trade to go along with it. I think the idea is so that you can supplement your income. So it's not all about learning. You also have to get your hands dirty. So 
as Paul learned the law, he also learned a trade. And one of the most common trades in Cilicia, where he was from, was tent making. In fact, Cilicians were known for making tents because of a certain kind of material from the Cilician goats. We'll talk more about goats later tonight. But uh, it was a prized commodity, and so a lot of people made tents. This word, though, that's translated uh, tent makers in verse 3 can also mean leather workers. And so it might have something to do with that. Uh, side of it. It's not really clear. But here's Paul in Corinth. He's alone. And one of the things that is true of Corinth is that it's a place because it's a a place on a small strait where the the two oceans there meet. It's a place of a lot of commerce and a lot of people coming and going. And uh, so it's actually well known in Corinth for there to be philosophers who would come in and sort of uh, siphon off the hospitality of the people and then leave town. And Paul doesn't want to do that. He's not trying to take advantage of anyone. He's going to provide for himself. Gamaliel taught him to do this, and so he goes back to working tents. Now, the question is, if Paul was a tent maker, why did Israelites need tents year-round? So the first part of this is, Paul's not living in Israel. He's living in Greece, uh, at least modern-day Greece. And so he is in a a far-flung part of the Roman Empire from where he was, and it's also more of a cosmopolitan area than Israel. So... It is an extremely busy port and way station, and tents were needed. The market for tents in the ancient world was about travelers and soldiers who were moving far away from home, from city to city, going from place to place, traveling. So many people would be too poor to afford a regular stay in an inn. Uh, It's not a, a place like in Israel where hospitality is the focus. And also, if you're in a large city, maybe you can't depend on that. So a tent is just an easy option. You know that you'll have a place to stay where you'll at least be somewhat sheltered uh, from the elements. But I have also read, and I didn't know this, but I've also read that um, tent making was really hard to make a living in except in the large cities. And you can imagine why that would be, you know, if you're in a small town and pretty much everybody that wants a tent has a tent, then there might not be that much of a market for tents. But uh, having thought about some of this and and thinking through it uh, to prepare for this, There are some things about Paul's effort to go back to tent making instead of preaching that I think think we can glean and benefit from. Uh, The first is that Paul wanted to not take advantage of people. He was very thoughtful about how people would perceive him. And even later, when there was a group of Christians in Corinth, which there's not, of course, when he comes... Even later, he is going to not take pay from them. It's going to kind of become an issue because he doesn't want them to think that he is a mercenary. He's just there to take advantage of them. And I think there's something to be said for that, that even though Paul had a right to do it, he says, I'm going to hold off because I want you to know I'm not in it to get something from you. I'm in it to give something to you. And I think that's an attitude that we need to embrace, the idea that I'm not here to take from you. I'm here to give. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Uh, Paul also provides an example of hard work. We talked about this a a few weeks ago when we talked about admonishing the idol and how Paul will refer back to in Thessalonica, remember how I worked night and day. I worked with my hands so that I wouldn't be a burden to any of you. So when he then has to instruct people about, hey, you need to be busy working, he can say, like I did. And so that's a very important part of this. Paul is saying, if you want to know what a Christian lives like and how a Christian works, look at me. I also think it's interesting that Paul was exposed to different social classes because of his work. If Paul had only hung out with the teachers and the philosophers, then he would have been in the upper classes. 
and he wouldn't have his hands dirty with physical labor, and he wouldn't be around the kinds of people who did do physical labor. He wouldn't be around the tanners and the leather workers. He wouldn't be out in the marketplace. He would be in an ivory tower rather than among the people. So when he works as a tent maker, he meets Aquila and Priscilla, a Jewish couple who have the same trade. He likely meets people that are from the guilds and the merchant classes and interacts with them and develops some kind of rapport with them. Do you remember that when Paul writes the letter to 1 Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, he talks about how not many of you were noble or of the high classes. He says that you're the lowly ones. And it may be that this is where a lot of those connections are forged because Paul is doing blue-collar work. And so it seems to me impressive that Paul takes this opportunity and, and then sort of translates it into a gospel opportunity to meet a different set of people. And then the the last thing I want to say about this is just that Paul shows us that we can glorify God in our everyday jobs. There's no shame in this for Paul. Instead, this is about Paul making a tactical decision that making tents is fine, even though obviously for Paul, God had some other specific purposes because he's going to be an apostle and everything. But doing everyday work, laboring with our hands, making a good wage, going to bed tired, there's benefit in that. And there's nothing shameful in that. That is service to God too. And so I think that we learn a lot from that. I think we learn that we can have the same kind of spirit. I I don't want to be taking advantage of people. I don't want to be afraid to work. I want to relish the opportunity to engage with all kinds of people, uh, no matter what class they're from, if they're like me or not. And I want to have this spirit that says, I'm going to work heartily as to the Lord and not to men. So think about that. And I especially want to encourage us as we go to work and sometimes that work feels frustrating and kind of futile. And it's just about, you know, us just providing for our families and we got the monotony of work to remember that we glorify God in our work. And Paul is an example of that. Second question. uh, Why were the Jews forbidden to boil a goat in its mother's milk? All right. So we're in Exodus 23. This is one of those questions that really only comes when you've been reading through the law of Moses, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and uh, you come across this statement. And it's just a, usually just a small quip at the end of a long list of things uh, that, that, you know, it'll make you scratch your head for a minute. But in my experience, it's one that I then move on to other things because there's a lot of things that confuse me in those sections. Uh, But this is the question that was asked, Exodus 23 and verse 19. It says, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And if you you look around that text, you see there's not really any other context about what what kinds of things are we talking about. In fact, he's going to jump off into another uh, section that has completely changed the subject. Uh, There are a couple other places that this is talked about. Uh, This is Exodus 34, 26. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So very much the same idea. Deuteronomy 14, 21 is another. Uh, This is some different things before it. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So what is that about? Why is that uh, condemned or forbidden? And why is it so, I mean, such a specific menu item? Well, the bottom line is that no one's really sure, but there are a lot of potential 
explanations. So I'll give you a few of those and you can kind of think through them. And then I have a point I want to make at the end. So first of all, there is a Ugaritic poem, which is just another word for a Canaanite language poem that says, cook a kid in the milk and a lamb in the cream. Okay, so that phrase that phraseology indicates that Canaanites were involved in boiling young goats, maybe not in their mother's milk, but in milk. So some claim, well, what the Canaanites were doing is like some kind of magic spell. Some of them will say it has to do with fertility rites. And then others say, well, no, this is about worship and idolatrous rites. And so they would, they would cook the, the young goat this way for some kind of uh, idol worship. So that's one explanation, and so that would then say that that God is forbidding this to say, my people don't worship, they don't do magic things, and they don't worship in the way that the the people around them worship, which would be fine, and and, uh, there are some places, like when we talked about tattoos before, talking about making carvings, and uh, those kinds of things, that are are pretty obviously uh, opposed to Canaanite practices. You see God sometimes distinguishing his people that way. Uh, There's another suggestion that says that in the first few days after giving birth, the mother's milk can have kind of a red tint. It's the the mother's colostrum uh, has an increased amount of protein, and so it's sort of like a little bit of blood. And so if it looks kind of red, the thought is that maybe uh, the the idea is that they're eating blood and they don't want to do that, and so don't cook it in in the mother's milk in that short time uh, because that eating blood is prohibited under the law. You might be aware, depending on how much you know about this, that the practice of uh, having a kosher kitchen, where uh, in a strictly kosher kitchen, in a Jewish kosher kitchen, you will have the dairy products and the meat products that are completely separate. And they will have to use different utensils and different cookware to deal with the dairy than to deal with the meat. And the reason for that is this idea. Don't boil a young goat in his mother's milk. But there is, there is one other potential possibility that, that I find, at least it's, it doesn't get a lot of press. I think that it's possible that this whole idea uh, is just about treating animals in a certain way. That there is something that's just improper about the mother continuing to live and only giving milk while the baby goat dies. And that that just seems off. It just doesn't go together. And I want to show you a few passages that you'll kind of see what I'm, I'm getting at when you get the idea of the, well, that's kind of an uh, unfair, not nice thing to, to you know, combine the mother's milk and the baby. Uh, well, uh, this is Deuteronomy 22 and verse 6. This is another one of those passages. If you're reading through the law, you come across it and you think, well, why is that in there? Uh, it says, if you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, And the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you and that you may live long. I mean, of all the scenarios that he would be wanting to instruct them about, he says, hey, here here are the specifics of if you find a bird's nest and how you treat the birds. But you can see the idea, don't take the mother with the young. Let the mother go. You know, you can take the eggs or if you want to do something with the babies, that's fine. But, but don't take them both. So maybe that's about don't eradicate birds, you know. Let them continue to, to have children and, you know, continue to, 
have a species, but it might just be uh, that this is about having compassion because that just doesn't seem very, very kind. Uh, This is Leviticus 22 and verse 27. It's the same idea. When an ox or sheep or goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother. And from the eighth day on, it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. But you shall not kill an ox or a sheep and her young in one day. So you, you get the idea. I don't know that that's about there's something wrong about that. It's just something where it just doesn't seem very proper or very kind. Uh, And then there is this, which I think is just a a broader idea in Proverbs. Proverbs 12 and verse 10. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. So, in other words, God is telling us, you know, be aware of the impact that you're having. Uh, You know, you you need to have meat to eat. You need to be able to eat animals. And God certainly has rules for that. But he's also saying be thoughtful about that and don't just be needlessly cruel so you have dominion but that doesn't mean destruction and so I think God is warning them about that so I think that's at least a possible reading of the idea of uh, boiling the young goat in its mother's milk so it's possible we're seeing a difference between Israel and the Canaanites it's also possible that he's telling us be aware of the impact you have on creation all right so and this is typical by the way for those who don't know Q&A we're going to completely switch gears and go to something completely else different and that is Uh, Does the water flowing from Jesus' side have spiritual significance? Let's go to John chapter 19. This is uh, John 19. This is when Jesus is on the cross and when he is pierced and blood and water come out. John chapter 19. John 19, beginning in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So the the idea here is they're concerned about the Sabbath is about to begin, which would happen at sundown, and they don't want the bodies to stay on the cross on the Sabbath. So the way that in crucifixion they would hasten death would be to break the legs so that the death would come sooner. But they come to Jesus, and Jesus is already dead. So instead of breaking his legs, which, by the way, would have violated the prophecy in verse 36, instead of breaking his legs, what they do is they pierce him in the side. In verse 34, the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So John specifies in verse 35 He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth. John specifies, I actually saw this. I saw the blood. I saw the water. And I want you to know, it's like he's signing it in this verse, saying, John, I really did see what I'm telling you I saw. Now, there is a very strong parallel to this passage in 1 John 5. And I I just want to show this to you. We're not going to be able to to explore everything about this section in 1 John 5 because there's more to it than what we want to get into tonight. But in 1 John 5, it says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. 
not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. So I want you to notice, I think the obvious connection is in that first part, water and blood. But there's also the idea of the Spirit and the idea of testifying. The Spirit and the water and the blood testify. And they are testifying of something. So when you look at these two passages side by side, water, blood, witness, or testimony. Water, blood, witness, or testimony. So I don't have time to go into 1 John 5 here. It's a complicated section. But I will sum it up this way. John sees the water and the blood that flowed from Jesus' side as testifying to the truth and power of his death. He really did die. That really is true. And that's important because some early Christians started to believe that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. Early Christians believed that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. He just appeared to. And so there was some kind of a different way that he actually was in the flesh, but it wasn't as a real human like you and me. Those people were called docetics. And John highlights the fact that, hey, I saw stuff that means what you're saying could not be true. What I saw is a man bleeding and dying, blood and water coming out of him. So he says, I saw Jesus die. And that seems to me, the idea of blood and water flowing out as evidence of Jesus' death, that's the main focus of what John's doing. He includes that detail to show, yes, he really did die. So uh, doctors have studied this, uh, medical doctors, to talk about, you know, is this a thing that happens where blood and water come out of someone? And they have said, some have said, it's possible when a spear goes in the side for it to pierce the heart and also the pericardial sac around the heart, which has water. So the blood would come out of the heart and the water would come out of that pericardial sac. Others say it's possible because there would be fluid that might come out of the lungs. So there, you know, there's some speculation about and when Jesus is beaten, is there fluid collecting in the lungs and that kind of thing. But the point of all of that is not so we know exactly what happened. It's to say that it's physically possible for a regular human to have blood and water come out and that be evidence that you know, he is a dead human. Jews and Greeks at this time held that man was made of two things, blood and water. So when John says, I saw blood, I saw water, what he is saying is, is Jesus is a real human who really died. So that's the primary reason why I believe this whole thing is recorded for us and why John gives his signature there about, I really saw these things. But the question is, does the water flowing from Jesus' side have spiritual significance? So is there any additional meaning to the idea that it's water? And to that, I can only give my speculation. My speculation, which the rest of what I'm going to say is speculation. My speculation is yes. I do think there is spiritual significance to this. I don't think that's really a stretch when you think about blood. The question is about water. But when you think about blood, blood is so common and referred to so commonly in the Bible 
as not just blood, but to refer to the life of the person, the life of the animal, that we don't have any trouble saying that blood is not necessarily literal. And the fact that Jesus' life is given to give life, that idea, and sometimes is symbolized by blood, the blood of Christ, that that furthers that idea that when we see Jesus' blood, yes, we think of it as blood, that literally happened, but we also think of its spiritual importance in cleansing us. But throughout the Gospel of John, John highlights water in a way that's spiritually significant. So let me just run that down for you. In the Gospel of John, John the Baptist baptizes with water. Jesus turns water into wine, John 2. John 3, Nicodemus needs to be born of water and the Spirit. John 4, the woman at the well, she asks, Jesus says, if you would ask me, I would give you living water and you would never be thirsty again. At the Feast of the Tabernacles in John 7, Jesus says that if the thirsty will come to me, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. And John specifically says what he means when he talks about flowing out rivers of living water is the Holy Spirit who's going to come on believers. And he says that's what it means to have water flowing out of you. Jesus uses water to wash the disciples' feet. So in each one of those different scenarios, physical water is involved. We're talking about physical water except for John 7, out of his heart flowing rivers of living water is a little bit different. But physical water is even involved with the woman at the well. But it's not strictly physical. It's not solely physical. There is spiritual significance to that use of water throughout the gospel. There is a long history of, um, all the way back to the church fathers, of taking the blood and the water that come out of Jesus' side and saying that what this is, is something like the Lord's Supper and baptism. And so the blood is the Lord's Supper and the water is baptism. I'm not sold on that. Uh, I'm not sure I can go there uh, just because I don't know that the Lord's Supper is ever strictly symbolized by blood. But one scholar said this, and I think this is more where I would line up. And remember, I, I mentioned before, this is just my speculation about how I would understand the water here. He said that the water and blood flowing out of Jesus represent how Jesus gives life even by dying. So the blood is his saving death, and the water is symbolic of the spirit and life that he gives. So while we need to know the facts about Jesus' death, you know, this really happened, yes, the the spear went in and pierced him, and and these things came out. This part is incredibly meaningful to us, that that death gives us life. And so when we see that, we don't just see facts, and we don't just see, oh, yes, let's go through the medical explanation of what happened. It's not cold to us, because from it we get life. And in that same way, his life is poured out. He is given all that he had so that we can have what we could not have without him. So what I'm getting at is that there are events in Jesus' crucifixion that have a physical meaning and maybe a spiritual significance that's even deeper than the physical part. So if you want a comparison for that, think about uh, the veil being torn into. You know, that's, this actually happens. The, the physical veil in the temple is torn into when Jesus is crucified. Did it really happen? Yes, it really happened. But does it have more than just a, a physical significance? Yes, I believe it does. I believe it has a symbolic meaning too. Or think of the earthquake. 
Was there a physical earthquake when Jesus is crucified? Yes, I believe there was. But is that all that means, that, that the earth happened to quake then? Well, no, it means something about how the earth is responding to what's happening to the Son of God, its creator. Or think about the saints being raised from the dead and the graves being opened as Jesus' tomb is opened. Oh, is that something that really happened? Yes, it literally happened, but also it has a spiritual significance that death has been conquered and that there is resurrection now. So my encouragement to you as you think about that, uh, as you go through your week, is to think about what's been done for you, a life that was given, that was poured out, the blood that was shed, a, a literal suffering and death so that you could have hope that when your body dies... You can have hope of eternal life. So if that was done for me, then how am I going to serve the one who did that for me? And how am I going to serve other people the way he taught me to serve other people? If we can look at him suffering in that way and see all that he has done, and all we get out of it is, wow, that's really sad, then I think we're missing part of this, that it was done for us to change us and to make us into new people. So... I want us to take something from this. I don't just want to, as I was looking through these questions, uh, they're, you know, they're kind of all over the map, and I understand that. But I do think there's some things we learn here about our work, and I think there are some things we learn here about our relationship to the creation and to animals. And I think there's some things we learn in this last question about what's been done for us and what it means for us. So I appreciate you studying along with me, and I want to encourage you, to keep asking questions uh, and keep sending those to me. I want to continue to do our Q&A. I don't know when we'll be able to do this on a regular Sunday morning again. I don't know when we're going to get back into that. Uh, But I do want to encourage you to keep asking, and uh, we'll continue to have studies where we we answer those questions and try to find uh, what God is saying to us in his word. So let's have a word of prayer, and we'll be done for tonight. Thank you so much for, for joining us tonight. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for this good day that you've blessed us with. And Father, as we are are near the close of this day, as we are beginning to shut down and to rest, as we set aside some of the burdens and concerns of the day, we thank you. We thank you for your word that is a guide to us and is a blessing to us. That it encourages us, that it recenters us on the things that matter. Father, so often we get wrapped up in all the tasks that we have and all the, the monotony of daily life, and we forget our obligations to you and our connection to you. And Father, I pray that you'll help us to remember you in everyday life. Father, we thank you that uh, you have given us roles and responsibilities in which we can serve you and serve others. Help us, Father, to see the incredible importance you place on those things. Help us to work hard as to the Lord and not to man. Father, I pray that you'll help us to have compassion on others. As we look around to a world that is like sheep without a shepherd, that is lost and scared, instead of being critical, to be helpful and to be kind, to reach out to help, 
to comfort and to care. I pray that you'll help us to realize the impact that we have on others. And Father, we thank you as we, as we think again about the incredible gift you've given us in sending your son to die for us. I ask that you'll help us to take his sacrifice to heart, to live in gratitude and in hope, and Father, to follow our Savior in serving and even giving ourselves and our time and our hearts and our lives for others. Father, I pray for our group, and I pray that you'll be with those who are suffering and sick. I pray that you'll be with those who are anxious, be with those who are uncertain about the future. Uh, Be with those who don't know when they're going to start school or where they're going to be. Be with those whose jobs are in limbo. Uh, Be with those who are having difficulties in their relationships with others. Be with those who are confused, who are scared, who are tired, who are doubting. And Father, I pray that you will reach out, give them the strength that they need. I pray, Father, that you will be with each one of us as brothers and sisters, that we will look at others and try to help and see what can be done to bless them. Father, I pray for the leaders of our nation, the leaders of our state, and all the people who are making decisions that are so difficult right now. I pray that you'll give them wisdom and that you'll help them to help others so that together we can grow stronger as a nation and we can have some uh, progress in the difficulties that we're in. But most of all, Father, we hang our hopes on you and we trust you that you're in control, that you'll do what's right. Father, I pray that you'll bless each one of us, that you'll continue to be with us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.